Pastors Larry and Tiz Huck welcome you to this weekly Torah study from New Beginnings Church in Bedford, Texas, taught by Pastor Scott Sigmund. We pray this message will help you better understand how God's Old Testament wisdom and New Testament revelation are meant to jointly fit together. Pastors Larry and Tiz Huck welcome you to this weekly Torah study from New Beginnings Church in Bedford, Texas, taught by Pastor Scott Sigmund. We pray this message will help you better understand how God's Old Testament wisdom and New Testament revelation are meant to jointly fit together. Because it's uh, Christmas Eve, I thought today would be uh, a good day to turn our focus uh, uh, to learning a little bit more about the birth of our Lord and Savior uh, rather than continue uh, and finish up studying the life of Joseph. But there, uh, there are many amazing connections between Jesus and Joseph, and I thought as we launched into today's study, I'd get into that a little bit, because uh, we've been studying Joseph now for a couple weeks, and today is the grand finale where Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. You remember the brothers uh, sold him into slavery, thought about just killing him, and said, well, well, why not make a profit? And uh, you know the rest of that story. Uh, but after many, many years, some say up to 22 years of being separated from uh, the family, uh, the family relationship is finally restored. And uh, it's a beautiful picture of reconciliation uh, and a reconciliation that God desires between Him and mankind. Uh, and uh, I know that for my family and probably for your family, there's somebody in the family that needs to be restored. Amen? And so there's a, this is the season for family restoration. And one of the key factors uh, that led to the healing of the relationship between Joseph and his brothers was due to the fact that his brothers over the years had become remorseful over what happened to Joseph. They just couldn't get it out of their minds. And the way that they resolved that in their spirit was to be remorseful and regretful for what they did. That's a good thing. And uh, for us today, it's a lesson to be learned that if there is a rift in the family... It's always helpful for someone involved to feel a sense of accountability and responsibility uh, and uh, to have a repentant heart. I'm sorry that all of this went down the way it did. And uh, oftentimes uh, it's hard for people to admit that, but we pray and our prayers as intercessors always need to include praying for family members whose eyes have been blinded and they can't see the promises of the gospel because it's all blocked by a bitter heart. 
And uh, there's no way uh, that uh, you can see forgiveness and repentance unless the person has that uh, remorseful, regretful heart. So uh, this is what was going on in Joseph's family, and I pray in our families, our church family, it happens for us too that walls of division and bitterness, resentment, whatever, will be uh, broken down. Amen? Say amen with me. So the brothers played a part, but Joseph played a part. Uh, And mainly it was Joseph's uh, capacity to forgive. In fact, when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, uh, the Torah shows us this is when forgiveness was born. Now you could say forgiveness was born at the creation, uh, uh, but uh, it's the first time that man forgives another man. Man forgives man in the God had forgiven Adam and Eve, and there was forgiveness that had been taken. But man was not forgiving man. There was always this division, and so. In the Torah, Joseph forgives his brothers, and it's the first time in the Bible we see this happening. And uh, Rabbi Sachs, the great Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who's gone on to heaven now, uh, he wrote an essay entitled The Birth of Forgiveness that goes in depth into this. You can look that up on the internet. And... uh, uh, And he points all of this out. But forgiveness and restoration of the family was only possible because Joseph refused to carry a grudge. Amen? He took some personal responsibility over the family situation and he brought forgiveness and restoration uh, uh, to bear into the family. Praise God. And it's an amazing thing, and what a great lesson, because what we're being taught through Joseph's life is not to dwell on the negative aspects of our life. Yes, those negative things happen. Yes, people did us wrong. Yes, there was pain and sorrow and suffering. My feelings were hurt and worse. Uh, But uh, as we see, the Bible remedy for that isn't to dwell on that. The Bible remedy for that is forgiveness that leads to restoration. And so with God's help, Joseph was able to reimagine all the issues, all the negative circumstances that went down through his life. He was able to look back on those Uh, in a different way, in a positive way. And it's here that we get the concept, what the devil means for evil, if we keep our attitude straight, God will turn that thing around for us. When I was in Bible college, I had a, a, a Bible instructor uh, who said, you can't go back and change the past. But God can help you rewrite the subtitles of what happened in your life. And that's what happened with Joseph. So, uh, with God's help, 
He was able to look at things in a new spiritual way, a positive way. And this is why forgiveness was birthed at this time. You know, just just think about modern day stuff. And we're in a society now, lots of division, uh, lots of offense, lots of hate, lots of everybody's at one another. Had Joseph chosen retribution, there would have been no restoration. And uh, he became more concerned with seeing the dreams that God had spoken to his heart when he was a youngster. He wanted to see those things manifest. And his main job was to make sure, don't get caught up in strife. Don't get caught up in unforgiveness. Don't get caught up in bitterness or anything God has planned for your destiny is going to be blocked because the devil will use that to block your blessing. And when the brothers showed up, he put them through a few tests along the way just to make sure that uh, the repentance was for real. But in the end, he responded to his brothers when they realized, This is Joseph! Joseph is alive! And Joseph said, What you did to me, you intended it for harm. But God intended to use it for good. What a way to look at life. What a Christian philosophy and concept. And so that shows us that we're not victims here, right? Yeah, a lot of bad things have happened. We don't minimize the bad things that have happened. But now that we're children of the King, beloved ones... That no longer defines us. Those bad things that happen to you and I no longer define us. That's not the central theme and focus. We are new creations in Christ. We have a new destiny in the Lord. And everything that God says about us is now the main story. Amen. But it can only happen if forgiveness is birthed in our hearts. And the greatest act of forgiveness is when Jesus is on the cross, suffering like no man has ever suffered, and he looks at the people and cries out to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. May we have that same spirit. Amen? Amen. So it's no coincidence this story is always studied around the time that we celebrate the birth of our Messiah. He was birthed to bring forgiveness, to bring eternal life, and to reconcile us with the Father. And so the rest of the morning, I want to study some amazing insights Uh, from the Christmas story that aren't that well known amongst Christians. Uh, And so let's begin, if you have your Bibles, turn over to Luke chapter 2. I'm reading in verse 8 from the New Living. It says, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. And suddenly... Guys, can you turn off these lights and turn on the, uh, the main lights there? I was wondering why I can't see my computer. Computer glare. 
Anyways, back to the story. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them and the radiance of the glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize Him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Amen. What a great story. That's the beginning of the greatest story ever told. Our Messiah, our Savior, was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And this is so important. You know, the, the uh, uh, name Bethlehem means house of bread. And so just being born in Bethlehem, is a powerful sign and spiritual reference to the work of the Messiah. He is the bread of life. He is the living Torah. And, uh, and so being born in Bethlehem is so important. Every Bible expert believes the Messiah uh, had to come from the line of Judah, the tribe of Judah, and the king Uh, and and King David, uh, the Davidic line. So again, Yeshua, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, is, is a powerful messianic sign. And then there's two, uh, messianic prophecies, one from Zechariah 9 and the other from Daniel 7 that have intrigued Jewish scholars and now Christian scholars, for many, many years. Uh, Zechariah 9 portrays the Messiah coming as a humble, lowly, suffering servant. Uh, However, in Daniel 7, it shows that the Messiah will come as a conquering king. And it's these two portrayals or illustrations of who the Messiah is and how he will be revealed that have, uh, especially in Judaism, uh, brought a lot of different debates and arguments. And uh, there's, uh, from the Christian point of view, uh, a, a lack of clarity. So let's go into these prophecies. Daniel seven thirteen. A prophecy by the prophet Daniel about the Messiah. It says in verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Amen. What a prophecy. Daniel 7.13 And this is a prophecy uh, of the Messiah coming as a conquering king. 
But then the prophet Zechariah seems to throw a little monkey wrench into uh, who the Messiah is and how he will be revealed in Zechariah 9. And in Zechariah 9, 9, he teaches the Messiah will come in one of two opposite ways. And it reads, Rejoice with all your heart, daughters of Zion. Shout out loud, daughters of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and he is victorious. There's the conquering king part. Yet, he is humble. He is riding on a donkey. Yes, on a lowly donkey's colt. And so, here's two pictures of the Messiah. One coming lowly as a servant, riding on a donkey, not on a white stallion the sign of a conquering king, but on a a colt, a donkey. And ancient Jewish wisdom teaches from these two prophecies, uh, speaking to Israel, if Israel is meritorious, that's if, if they have merit in their lives, forgiveness in their lives, repentance in their lives, the Messiah will come on the clouds of heaven. If not, lowly and riding upon a donkey. And so, out of all what we're talking about and I'm sharing today, uh, has been developed in Judaism a doctrine known as the two messiahs. The two messiahs. And it teaches that a first messiah would come called... Messiah, son of Joseph, Mashiach ben Yosef in Hebrew. Because the Messiah, like Joseph, will be rejected by his brothers and will suffer greatly. So he's been called, even in Judaism, the suffering servant. Because he was rejected by Israel. But then it flips to the opposite teaching that a second Messiah would eventually follow Messiah, son of Joseph, Moshiach ben Yosef, and he would be called Moshiach ben David, Messiah, son of David, the glorious or conquering Messiah who would come like King David came in all his glory and all his power and establish the kingdom. And so why am I sharing this? It just shows us how Judaism laid a foundation for an understanding of the Messiah. They just were unable to use the New Testament to help refine the revelation. But when you go back in time and begin to look at some of the early teachings, you realize Judaism and Christianity really aren't that far apart. We both believe in Messiah. And we could go in uh, to, well, why, why don't the Jews just get it? Why don't they just accept Jesus? Have you ever been to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? If you haven't, look it up online. 
and you will see all the idolatry, all the graven images, all the kissing of statues, and the praying to different saints and different people that are not divine. And it's a, uh, a picture to the Jew of idolatry. And so when Jews think about uh, uh, Christianity, they mostly associate us with that. Catholicism, the Vatican. And although the Vatican and Catholicism has done some great things, boy, they have some very strange doctrines that you and I don't want in our lives. And so... Going uh, back to ancient Jewish wisdom, listen to what uh, the, the great teachers in Judaism from thousands of years ago have said. The Messiah descended from Joseph will appear first to bring salvation to the Jewish people. Now these are Jews writing this. However, he will be killed. And the full redemption will be brought about solely through the Messiah descended through David. Can you see how close we are in our theology? Jews believe that there may be two Messiahs that come, both accomplishing something different. Christians believe there's one Messiah that comes two times accomplishing the very same things. It goes on to say, in the period of the Messiah descended from Joseph, death and sin will continue to exist. To this day, death and sin continue to exist. But the period of the Messiah descended from David will usher in a new natural order in which death and sin will have no place. They're reading Christian theology. And yet they started it before there was anything known as Christians. So this was all written pre-Christianity. And this is a a, a neat thing to consider during the Christmas story because we're talking about the birth of a Savior, a Redeemer, a Deliverer. And we're seeing now as we go back and study this ancient literature how close Jews and Christians are when it comes to understanding the coming of the Lord. Now, especially in Judaism... This debate on how the Messiah would come to redeem Israel has gone on for thousands of years. Would he be a suffering servant, as in Isaiah 53? Would he be a victorious leader? Would there be two Messiahs? And our Jewish friends, most have accepted the idea, let's say many, that there are two Messiahs. And uh, they have yet to be revealed. So, one of the takeaways is that Judaism is the, are the people, Jews are the people that first introduced the idea of a Messiah. 
In fact, in Maimonides, one of the great uh, rabbis from 1,500 years ago, in his great 13 principles of the Jewish faith, I believe it's number 6, says, Jews must believe in the coming of Moshiach. Yeah. So they do get it. They just don't get Church of the Holy Sepulchre, since that's right around the corner from them. Have you ever been there? Who's ever been there? Oh my gosh. I don't even go in anymore. It just, it, it just doesn't make me feel happy. So, this is why you see thousands upon thousands of Jews gathered in Jerusalem on Passover, worshiping Yeshua as God's Passover lamb. Right? Hosanna, Son of David, we worship you, you are Messiah, right? That's what we study over Passover. It's why the book of Acts teaches that myriads of Jews who were zealous for the Torah believed that Yeshua was Moshiach. That's in the New Testament, myriads. One myriad is 10,000. And... Acts, the book of Acts says myriads of Jews believed in Yeshua. So this idea that Israel rejected uh, Jesus is really a misnomer. They accepted, the common folk accepted, but what we don't really, and we don't have time to get into this today, is the difference between Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees controlled the temple, they controlled the sacrifices, they were political appointees of Rome, they were not religious people per se, well they weren't spiritual people, but they were very religious, and they viewed Jesus as a threat to the power structure that revolved around the temple. And so when you watch all the, 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 the movies of Jesus... Uh, you'll see everybody all dressed up in all this fancy uh, uh, religious garb. They're Sadducees. The Pharisees were the pastors, were the teachers, and they were just regular folk. And they dress like regular folk. And so uh, we miss it in Hollywood's translation or interpretation of who was calling for the death of Jesus. And the reason the common people line the streets is because the Pharisees, the rabbis, the teachers, they, they were at odds with the Sadducees. They were like Republicans and Democrats today. Sadducees and Pharisees were not good friends. They had amazingly different doctrines. So, anyways... Judaism, they typically would believe the Messiah will come, uh, there'll be two Messiahs that come, and in Christianity we believe one Messiah that will come two different times. Amen. Interesting stuff, right? This is uh, some uh, good background when you're studying the Christmas story. Another messianic prophecy I want to share with you today is in Micah 5. Go over to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Here, uh, Bethlehem is called by a different name. Bethlehem here is called Ephratoth. 
And it says in verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, least among the clans of Judah, from you one shall come forth to rule Israel for me, one whose origin is from old, from ancient times. Amen. Talking about the Messiah. And it's interesting because this name, Ephratah, means place of fruitfulness. Place of fruitfulness. And just like Bethlehem, the house of bread, it describes the work of the Messiah. He has come to give us an abundant spiritual life, an abundant physical life, a fruitful life, where our life is a harvest that others can partake of. Amen? Isn't that good? How many of you are thankful that the Messiah is working in your life and producing fruit, producing harvest, a spiritual harvest? A financial harvest. A family harvest. Amen. And may we continue to bring forth much fruit. But notice what one of the great rabbis in all of Jewish history, Rabbi Rashi, uh, he has a commentary. And I love to go in and say, well, what does Rabbi Rashi think this means? And those things are very important because when you study just solely from Christian commentators, many of them leave out any kind of input from Jewish scholars. So you miss an aspect of what the Bible means because they're not using and drawing on the benefit of the men that wrote the book. Just a thought. If Einstein writes a book, but you don't listen to Einstein to get what Einstein means, it's kind of like, why don't you just listen to what Einstein says instead of what someone says he thinks he's saying? Yeah, right? So listen to what he writes about Micah 5 too. For from you shall emerge from me the Messiah, son of David. And so Scripture says, and he refers to Psalm 118.22, the stone the builders had rejected becomes a cornerstone. So Rashi is connecting a Scripture that you and I have used in Christianity, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he recognizes that this prophetic word in Micah 5, 2 uh, is teaching us that all of this is connected to the work of the Messiah and the events that will surround his life. And so Rashi, you and I, most Bible experts believe that uh, there's something very special about the Messiah coming from Bethlehem. But what's not so commonly known is that Bethlehem has a third name. And most of us have never seen this or been taught this in all of our Christian teaching. Uh, But Bethlehem is also known as Migdal Adar. Migdal Adar. 
And this name, Migdal Adar, offers an amazing explanation of an alternative on how Jesus was born. And we're going to, for the next uh, 15 minutes or so, get into this. This name, Migdal Adar, is found in Genesis 35. And it's connected with the story of Rachel and Jacob and the birth of Benjamin. For centuries, Jewish teaching has always drawn a powerful connection between the birth of Benjamin and the coming of the promised Messiah. So when they study this story in Genesis 35, they will at various times fast forward to how does this connect to the Messiah? Let me explain. Uh, First of all, Rachel, Rivka in Hebrew, uh, her name is a coincidence because it, uh, her name means lamb. Okay, keep that in mind. And she gives uh, uh, birth to Benjamin in Bethlehem. And another coincidence is that in this story, it's the first time Bethlehem's name is used in the Bible. So there's something significant about this. Sadly, many of you would know, Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. But just before she passes away, she names her son Ben-Oni. Ben-Oni, and Ben-Oni means son of my sorrow, or son of my suffering. You can kind of, your minds are working. I see how this connects to this two Messiah teaching. How the Messiah would come as a suffering servant, and then in what is just a mind-blowing response, Jacob instantaneously renames Benjamin and names him Benjamin, 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 son of my right hand. And in Jewish teaching, your right hand is your hand of strength and power. So just imagine that. Rivka, Rachel, Son of my sorrow. Jacob, Yaakov, no, 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 no. He is son of my strength. And so, for ages, Jewish scholars have debated this mystery of why the dual naming? What is God trying to teach us here? What does it all mean? And they've concluded it has to do with something about the Messiah, and it's part of this two-Messiah doctrine in Judaism. Now back to Migdal Adar, because immediately after Rivka gives birth to Benjamin, Benjamin, She's buried in Bethlehem. She's the only patriarch that isn't buried in the cave of Machpelah down by Hebron. And her tomb, uh, you can go to Rachel's tomb just outside of Jerusalem in Bethlehem. And uh, just as she gives birth, uh, 
and uh, Jacob buries her, he continues his journey, and the Bible says he journeys to a place called Migdal Adar. He brings his newborn child to this place called Migdal Adar in Bethlehem. And it just so happens that this name, Migdal Adar, this location, this place, is mentioned in another messianic prophecy. In Micah 4.8. And you can turn over to Micah 4.8 if, if you have your Bible with you. And Micah says... Micah 4.8 And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughters of Zion, unto thee it shall come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughters of Jerusalem. Messianic prophecy. Well, yeah, but Pastor Scott, where is the name Migdaladar? Well, your English Bibles, our English Bibles, translate it, O Tower of the Flock. But in Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word, Migdal Adar. In fact, in the Jerusalem Study Bible, they actually use the name Migdal Adar. It's an actual place in Bethlehem. And... It confirms to Jew and Christian alike that the Messiah will come out of the city of David, out of Bethlehem. Or what is called the Tower of the Flock. Or in Hebrew, Migdal Adar, a specific place. In one of the ancient translations, you know, there's a lot of translations of the Bible from ancient times that we've never really been acquainted with. And they just add a dimension of knowledge and wisdom and opens up uh, different ways to look at things. And in this case, uh, there's an ancient translation of the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic called a Targum. And the word Targum means translation or interpretation. And uh, they, they write in a commentary part of this Targum, drawing on Genesis 35, drawing on Micah 4, that, uh, and here's what it says, He spread his tent beyond Migdal Adar, the place where King Messiah will reveal himself at the end of days. So in Jewish teaching, they're telling us that King Messiah is going to be revealed in a place called Migdal Adar. And as you research this location, Migdal Adar, uh, there's a whole story behind it. And just in a nutshell, the story is that Migdal Adar, right there in the Bethlehem area, was a watchtower. And it was a watchtower built for shepherds. 
And the shepherds would be at the top of the watchtower watching over the flocks in the pastures so that if robbers or predators came, they would see them well in advance and be able to save the sheep. It was a lookout station to watch over the flocks of sheep. Then... On top of that, in one of the most stunning discoveries, research shows that Migdal Adar was actually a holy place. Oh boy. And it was designated for the service of the temple priests for a specific reason. I wonder what that reason is. Well, you can go back into the ancient literature... And you can find that Migdal Adar is a place the shepherds who were appointed by the temple priest watched over the sacrificial sheep that were used to be sacrificed in the temple. My gosh. Did you catch that? Migdal Adar is an ancient dwelling place of Jacob and Benjamin, and it's the place where the temple priest assigned temple shepherds to watch over temple sheep. Oh my gosh. I can see your minds at work connecting dots. So there's more. On the ground floor of this tower, it wasn't just a a bunkhouse for the boys. It contained a birthing room. And the birthing room was specifically designated to birth the lambs and to care for the lambs so that they would be without spot or blemish. Say amen with me. Are you seeing how this is connecting? See, the assignment was, we need ceremonially clean lambs and sheep to offer as sacrifice to the Lord. That's the Lord's requirement. None of the animals could be hurt or blemished in any way. And so, to help achieve that, these baby lambs, these ewes, were wrapped in swaddling clothes and then laid in mangers until they got their sea legs. Isn't that what the angels told the shepherds that were out in the fields in Luke 2.12? This will be a sign to you. You'll find the babe, the king, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. My gosh. Have you ever wondered why the angels didn't give them a map or directions? This will be a sign to you. Go down two pastures, take a right, walk a hundred yards. What? What? Why give them a a sign the babe will be wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger? How are they supposed to know? What am I supposed to do with that one? 
All of a sudden, can you imagine, they're just running around all of God's green earth trying to find, you know, where the the babies wrapped in swat. No, they were shepherds assigned by the temple priests, temple shepherds raising temple sheep. They knew exactly what the angel was talking about. Just that 2,000 years later, most Christians don't know what it's talking about. But now we know. The shepherds knew exactly where to go. They went to the birthing place at the tower of the flock, the watchtower, Migdal Adar. And so what do we look? These aren't ordinary sheep and they're not ordinary shepherds. Jewish men employed by the temple, charged with raising temple sheep, used for sacrifice. These guys were the first witnesses of the birth of the Lord. And it makes perfect sense to me. Look, we can debate, oh, I don't believe all that. Okay, yeah, I mean, we can argue that. But why would God just choose some random place? It's like we think that the inn Mary and Joseph went to was like the Holiday Inn. And out back they had a big red barn. And they had Charlotte's Web animals all up in there. And they were just uh, randomly just, there it was. How many of you believe God just does things randomly, by accident, it's just a twist of fate? Or does God have something that you and I are meant to discover that shows the brilliance and the glory of the redemptive plan of God? That our Savior wasn't just born in some random barn somewhere. He was born in Adar. Where they, the temple priests assigned the temple shepherds to raise the temple sheep. So when they went to the inn, what likely happened, there's no room for you in the inn. Where do we go? They probably knew the story. They probably knew about Rivka and Yaakov and the birth of Benjamin. And it wasn't that far. It, it could have just been... A couple hundred steps away. Let's go there. And they give birth to the Lord. Not in just some red barn someplace out behind the Holiday Inn. But gives birth where the temple sheep, the lambs of God that would take away Israel's sin were raised and then taken a few miles to the temple for sacrifice. That's where Jesus was born. Because He is the Lamb of God. And God sent him as the ultimate sacrifice. And the sign is, he is the Lamb of God and he's being birthed where the temple lambs that take away the sin are birthed to show mankind how awesome our God really is. My gosh. Silent night, holy night. Not just a random occurrence, is it? It was divinely inspired. Our Savior, who is Christ the Lord, was born in Bethlehem in a very special location. Uh, The location where the temple lambs were raised for sacrifice. Because He is God's Lamb. And He was born in that tower, that uh, watchtower called Migdal Adar. Amen? Isn't that awesome? So... 
as we celebrate Christmas, just uh, from Lydia and I, from Pastor and Tiz, all the staff to you guys, thank you for a great year. Thank you for uh, making New Beginnings a special place. And uh, our prayer for you is that uh, your family will flourish. You'll experience divine miracles, divine restoration. Some great things are going to happen in your life starting right now in this place and carrying on through Christmas and New Year's. And we're going to go into 2024 and experience together our best year ever so far. Amen.